Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined once again by Brian Gottlieb, back from his travels to New Zealand. But there's a problem, Brian. What what problem might that be, Gerald? Do you want to tell me about the problem that we're currently experiencing? Well, as I feared, your voice is different, but you don't have an accent. Mm, I might. I honestly might. I, I can't tell under the layers of disease and mucus currently seeped into my body. So uh, we'll figure that out once the sickness is cleared. Good news is negative COVID tests so far. So doesn't appear to be that. If that's good news, I don't know. Maybe I'm bringing like new COVID back to America and I'm, I'm just starting us all over again. So uh, we'll see how, how this develops over time. But yeah, not feeling great this week, which is a shame because we have a really cool episode and one that I've, I've been excited about doing and one that we hope will be useful forever. And that means people are going to have to listen to my horrible, raspy voice till the end of time. Yeah, wanted to do something evergreen. And I think the timing is right. It just so happens that you are not doing well. And yep, there it is. Some, some sniffles. Yep. I'm going to be a bit of that. I'll try and hit the mute button, but I can't, can't guarantee I'll, I'll be on it 100%. You know, uh, yeah. Sincere Con- apologies to everyone. Connor, listening. Connor is an excellent editor. That is true. Uh, I have faith in him. Don't believe that he's going to be able to take out all the sniffles, but who knows? Can you make me not sound like garbage, Connor? That's what I would like. In fact, you know, just redub my entire part. Just go out, <laughs> give someone a script, and just have someone sit in for me this week. Right. Okay. So we could talk about your travels and everything, but in the interest of being an evergreen episode, I think we should just get into it. I am I am fine with that. Let's let's move forward and discuss the topic at hand. Oh wait, there's one thing we do have to do though that isn't evergreen. Oh no, what? We got to talk about your auction that you have up. Oh, I, I don't think it's damn. it's right not to mention that. So we're yeah, going to kind of things right. a little bit. You're right. So U.S. Supreme Court so has, has a lot of shit bags. Yep, uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. Abortion going to be outright banned or at least have a lot of laws made against it in roughly half the states. So a lot of folks are doing fundraisers, including myself. I started an eBay auction on Sunday with some stuff that I had lying around. If y'all have been following me for a while or even us, like we, we did an auction at 1.2, but y'all should not be surprised that I'm doing an auction for what I consider to be a very good cause. And uh, basically since the last auction, whenever I see something cool, I try and pick it up. If it's, you know, reasonably affordable. And I think that would be a sweet item to have in a future auction because these things come up. So uh, I was kind of prepared, actually. I had a lot of sweet stuff. There's a 8.5 graded collector's edition Black Lotus that I've been sitting on for four-ish years. It's a pretty incredible piece. Yeah, not bad. And uh, I have this pin that apparently was only sold at like the first few Pro Tours in a Pro Tour shop. And I had to have Scott Larrabee basically identified that for me because it was this thing that I just never seen before, like this piece of magic memorabilia, which is weird because I've, I've been around forever. I've seen everything. Right. But I saw that thing and I was like, yo, is this, is this legit? Where's this from? You know? Uh, so that's cool. Had some first edition mystery boosters and, or a box of mystery boosters and some loose packs and just assorted stuff like that, man. I had some sealed sets from wizards, had some more collector's edition duels from, a collection that I picked up a few years ago, just put in all the coolest stuff I had basically. And was like, let's go. 
Yeah, uh, an impressive array of things and an impressive effort so far. Have you have you taken a look today at what the auctions are are sitting at? No, not not today yet. I normally check them like once a day, and I think day one was like six, day two was seven, and then by like day three and a half or whatever is like pretty close to nine k total. And the Lotus definitely still has some room to grow. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we definitely had to mention this. I'm extremely proud of you. I'm extremely appreciative of you putting this together. Uh, you're doing a lot of good for a lot of people. And I hope people go and check it out. And, you know, if it's in their range to do so, maybe throw a juicy bid on one of these really cool items. Yeah, why not? I mean, get something sweet, goes to a good cause. Um, I, I did have some folks reach out that are like, yo, these things are like a little outside my price range. Is there something that I could do that's like a little bit smaller? And my recommendation for that is uh, Olivia Gobert Hicks and uh, Alias V are also doing a fundraiser on Friday, which will probably be the day that this episode comes out. So poke around on their Twitters and find out what they're doing. I believe that they're just going to be streaming for a very, very long time, uh, taking donations and giving giveaways. And they've already gotten a bunch of different donations from various people. They have people price matching them up to like $30,000 and I think last time I checked, they had raised like ten or fourteen thousand already. So like they are absolutely crushing it too. And that is a spot where you can, you know, chip in 10, 20 bucks, whatever you whatever you have, whatever you feel comfortable donating or whatever, and like get entered into a raffle to win some cool stuff. But also, you know, you can just be there watching the stream, supporting that way too. That works. Sharing too. I mean, sharing is a big thing with things like this. Just retweet, let people know the stream's going on. Same with these auctions. If you could share them, you know, everything that potentially exposes it to a new audience that wouldn't otherwise see it is important. And just getting the word out there can make a really big difference in these efforts. So that's a really good way to contribute if you're a little cash strapped. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely agree with that. I mean, my, my first tweet is at this point, 300 and some change retweets, which is pretty good. No, you know, not going to complain or anything, but there were definitely instances of people that I would consider to be like terminally online who see it on like day three of it being up, despite it being like retweeted every day. That, that That's what it takes. It's just like three days in a row of a bunch of people retweeting it to finally get it on someone's timeline who you would think would be like a favorite to see it or whatever. So yeah, you think like a uh, 300 retweets or whatever, like that's enough. It's like, it's not like, just please, you know, keep, keep plugging this plug Ailey's thing, Olivia's thing. Uh, just, you know, keep, keep doing whatever you can, even, even if you only have like a hundred followers or whatever, like it doesn't matter. It still helps because you got to beat that algorithm into submission. That's the right. Yeah. I got to do that. And also it's like the people that follow you might not follow me. Right. So who knows? Yep. Yep. All seconded here. All good work. Uh, proud of everyone in the community stepping up to, to do something here in a very trying situation for a lot of people. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, MCQ time. Or RCQ? RCQ. Damn, right now? Damn, I am I am not prepared. I have like half a deck put together and uh, geez, I don't, I don't feel very well. I'm actually not sure if I should attend this first RCQ. When is it? How I much time do you have? I have, I have no idea. Uh, my assumption is there's still a few weeks at this point. Um, I, I, the dates I first saw floating around were like July-ish. Do you have a first date in mind? Like something that is on your calendar as maybe the first one you will be attending? Uh, well, Anderson LeClaire put together a very helpful spreadsheet for me for our kind of like local area. He's uh, a few hours east of where I am. He's like just directly on, on the coast, basically. And I'm kind of like in the southern middle of Virginia. Okay. 
But he was like, yo, I'm, I'm just going to try and go to all of these, you know, do you want to go? Or are you interested in, you know, having the list of the events that I'm planning on? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. First one it, for, for us locally is July 9th. And there's okay. one on the 10th also. Okay. So, so getting close already, you know, that's, that's next weekend as we sit right now. So you've got to start ordering those cards, getting them in, getting all your, your ducks in a row before you have to go play a magic tournament with stakes a really nice position to be in yeah and this this go around is interesting right because i think the easiest comparison is uh rcqs to pptqs because these are mostly happening at a local store level and i think that that is how people really look at them but i i think that these are a little bit different and much better because i i think a a decent amount of stores, not not all of them, but from what I've seen, like folks are actually putting up prizes for a lot of these, which the PPTUs didn't really have. And I think part of that is because they're expecting more players, which I also think is just going to be true. I think more players are going to show up because the, the first prize for this is not you qualify for an RPTQ that's going to have 40 people. You qualify for a regional championship, which is basically like a smaller pro tour. So like you're actually like the, the RCQ invite is worth way much more than the PPTQ invite. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's night and day, whereas the PPTQ system uh, was something I found kind of frustrating. And, you know, those those RPTQs were still uh, low prize, low stakes, low prestige. They, they were just like a, a filler step, an additional step that felt very frustrating to have to even qualify for, quite frankly. That, that's not the case here. These this next step up is very close to what was previously a pro tour. And uh, at, at least in the US, you know, the system is different all around the world for sure. But for us, the events being run by DreamHack, very, very comparable to a pro tour. And uh, a, a lot on the line at some, you know, what are ostensibly local tournaments. Yeah. And you, you bring up a good point there too, is that we are certainly focusing on the US, like we're paying more attention to the things that are around us and everything. And I, I know that, you know, US or abroad, things have been a little awkward so far with the rollout and what things are appearing on Wizards website and uh, how quickly like stores are announcing them or like how, how late in the game stores are finding out that they actually have one. Right. So uh, I, I can speak to how things are going here because I'm paying attention to things here, but certainly things might be different in your area, depending on where you are. Yeah. The, the only other uh, site I have any real insight into is actually like the Australia, New Zealand region. Cause I was speaking nice. with folks there when I was uh, down in New Zealand about their plans and how things are working over there. And it's, it's definitely like a smaller event. I think like the, the regional pro tour in that case is like 5k to first, if I remember correctly, or it might've just been like a 5k total to the prize uh, pool. So th- that's like a grand prix. I mean, yeah, 5k but, total is heinous. Yeah, that might not be correct. It might be 5k to first. Um, but obviously like a much smaller field, although a much smaller number of invites given to the actual pro tour. So the system is, is very weird. Uh, very different all around the world. So it's tough to give like generalized information. Thankfully, we're actually going to be talking about the step before that today, which I do think applies to basically everyone throughout the world. Uh, you know, when the the actual regional pro tours show up, we may have to reevaluate how we want to prep people for them. But this first pre-step is very similar in most places. Yeah, and we 
like that's by design. You know, we try to do it that way. Correct. So I think the, the big point that you might want to take away from all this is that maybe you should approach these differently than other tournaments. And there are a lot of reasons why, and we'll get into those reasons, but I think a lot of people will look at it like, Oh, my local store or the store that's an hour away or whatever is running kind of like this rinky dink event or whatever. So I'll just like show up, you know, grab whatever deck I have and and whatever. And it's like, obviously you can participate in the system that, that way. That's completely fine. But I think that you may be surprised to learn that other people are taking it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, look, there's a lot of people who have been waiting for this moment, either because this was a large part of their life previously, or because they found magic in recent times and are like hearing of this glorious past, this exciting uh, competitive system that kept so many of us engaged for so long and just waiting for their chance to finally participate in it. And it, it's happening. And I don't know what the attendance number is going to be like. I kind of waffle back and forth where sometimes I'm like, wow, this should be huge. It seems like everyone's interested. And other times I'm like, uh, do people still care about this? And I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I, I think uh, it's going to be regional how it's answered. I think, you know, some areas are still going to have a very robust scene. Other areas are going to find that uh, a lot of their participants have moved on, uh, you know, moved to different games, stopped playing TCGs in person, things like that. It, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out in terms of participation uh, over the next few weeks. Yeah. From my experience, it has been the local stores mostly expecting that their capacity is going to be capped. And are, are they like advertising a cap and selling X number of seats with the expectation that they won't be able to offer additional seats beyond that? Yeah, pretty much because this, okay. this is, this is all, well, I don't want to say all because I don't know like every single store situation or whatever, but from what I have seen, at least in Virginia, it appears that it is all happening in store. Yeah. So there is yeah, a limit. That's what I've seen as well. Right? That's what I've seen as well. And it's good to hear that, you know, during the earlier days of PTQs, store size limitations weren't really respected. You sold as many seats as you possibly could. <laughs> People were playing on the floors, on the counters, and if the you had to go play in the McDonald's next across the street, you'd do that. Like I, all of these things have happened in the past. And I, I think that's actually really uh, insulting to players. I, I think capping is the way you're supposed to go about it. You're supposed to sell a set number of seats. When you hit that cap, you can't do it anymore. And, you know, that could eventually bring its own problem should all these things sell out. But that, that's a good problem to have. And let's get to that point first before we're worried about, uh, you know, addressing an issue that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, because right now we don't even know how many people are going to be interested in it. Although, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that there has been a lot of chatter and people are eager to return to this. And I think that you are going to see people taking it seriously. And I think that most, if not all areas have some local try hard, you know, super spiky grinder sort of folks. And uh, that's going to be me. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to show up to these tournaments and hopefully, hopefully do some smurfing and just like crushing people because I don't know, everyone's got to live somewhere. Right. And there are a lot of people like Nassif, for example, who's like not qualified for the next pro tour. So you, you might be surprised who shows up. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most interesting points about these events. Before we get into like broader things, let's can we talk about like your own expectations and goals, what you're trying to do with this system? Like do you do you want to play these regional pro tours? Do you intend to go to these pre-PTQs and play to win? 
Uh, or are you there to participate, do your best, you know, scoop to someone you know in the finals? Just like where are you at in terms of your goals? Uh, it, it, it changed, I guess. Maybe about a month ago, I was like, yeah, I'm going to win. I'm going to play in the RC. Mm-hmm. But DreamHack removed like basically all their COVID restrictions. So I, I don't even know if I'm going to go to Atlanta if I qualify. So then that leads me to question how seriously I want to take this. But like, so like a month ago, even when I was like, yo, I, I want to qualify and, and play in the RC and everything, I offered uh, Anderson to that I would just like sit out like one or two of the tournaments and just like bird his matches and uh, basically like do some coaching sort of stuff. Right. If, if he was interested, if he wanted me to. And I am pretty happy to do that with anyone that I genuinely like, which is, you know, 50 people or less. Right. It's pretty it, small it's, group. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a lot, but I mean, he's, he's one of those people. Absolutely. So uh, I offered that up. I don't, I don't know if he wants to take me up on it or not. We'll see. Also depends on a lot of different stuff. Like, you know, if, if the stores don't really have COVID policies either, it's just like, well, I might just like drive there, find out that no one's wearing masks and just be like, yeah, okay. See you. Yeah. It's definitely complicating the situation. It, it's just like such a weird thing. I mean, I faced it uh, about a month ago. I was in the top eight of a, a flesh and blood PTQ and there was like 20 reasons why I wasn't sure what I was doing there. Like I, I was potentially uh, covering this, the pro tour that I was qualifying for. I knew I was about to step up the level of work I was doing on the game and wasn't sure that I even like wanted to participate in a pro tour just for the, uh, you know, impression of fairness. Not that I, I worked on the set that the, upcoming pro tour is uh you know focused around but still i you know there's there's something to be said for just like not taking that slot from someone who isn't working on the game and then also uh i was on the same side of the the bracket as my brother in the top eight so i had like 20 reasons why i was just so ready to scoop and i ended up ultimately losing just straight up anyway so it didn't matter but it, it does put like this weird I don't know, asterisk around your entire tournament experience when you don't know exactly what purpose you're there for. Yeah. And I would definitely recommend that people figure out what they want and what they want should then determine the amount of effort or whatever that they put into it. Right. And in my case, I mean, I I still think that it's relevant for me to know the formats and understand what's going on and be able to give people good advice and be able to say like, here is the deck that I would play and be relatively confident in that. And so I'm still going to try and do that work. But then, yeah, once I get to the tournament, who, know, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, certainly if I play against Anderson, like in the top eight or something, I'll probably just concede or, you know, if he's not comfortable with that, I'll just throw it, whatever. Like, <laughs> hopefully he doesn't listen to the podcast. But yeah, I don't right. know. Ear, earmuffs um, before that part. Right. But the flip side of it too is like, it wouldn't be that bad to have the invite if I do decide that I want to use it. Mm-hmm. So I might just go that route too. And also just being able to say like, Hey, I won one of these or whatever. Like even it's not a big deal, but like whatever, like it's always nice to get a W. I mean, yeah. it doesn't really matter like what the stakes are or, you know, it just, it feels good to win at our core, despite like the way we engage with these games changing dramatically over time. I, I still think there's a huge portion of just like, I want to show up and win that is driving every single decision I make when it comes to TCGs, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly true for the things that I do casually too. 
Yeah. It's just like, I can't, I can't turn it off. Right. There's just something in my brain that makes me want to seek that as the goal. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. So, so I'm glad we started with this point, like a kind of our own expectations, because I think it goes really nicely into the first point we have for people besides us who are participating in these RCQs. And, And that's sort of doing what we're doing right now, taking stock of like, how much does this mean to you? What What are your goals here? What are you trying to do? And what are you willing to give up to achieve it? Which I think is a huge part of the equation. It is, absolutely. I mean, there's travel expenses for sure. Gas is not cheap. And even if you're just going an hour, I mean, are you going to have a car with three of your friends uh, like the old days? Unlikely, honestly, you know? Uh, so even if it's just like you and a person chopping gas and say it's maybe like a little bit too far and you have to get a hotel or whatever. It's like that stuff adds up. The tournament entries add up. If you need to get missing cards for your deck list or you want to change decks at some point, it's like this stuff is all pretty expensive. And I think that, you know, how much you're willing to put into it should definitely align with how hard you're trying and how how much you want it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And it's very easy to find yourself like investing a lot in these efforts, but also not really like caring enough to, to meet that investment. Do you know what I mean? Like you've put forth all these, you know, dollars and hours of prep, and then you get to the end step where you're going to play this tournament and you like do a four hour drive at three in the morning. And that's, that's your night's sleep before you play this thing that you've been working really hard to to, to succeed in, it's like, if, if you believe that this is important to you and you're invested to this extent, don't be afraid to take that even extra investment, I guess. You know, this is all very relative and like dependent on your scenario, but there's sort of like some amount of sunk costs here where you've, you've put in all this time, all this effort, you really do have to set yourself up for success. And if that means rent a hotel room close to the site or or travel by yourself or sleep by yourself. I, I do think those things are worth considering. And for a long time, it's not something I would do. Like I just would go with groups of people to PTQs and travel last thing in the morning because that's the way you did these things. And then at some point when I maybe started to care a little bit more or also just care about like comfort and enjoyment a little bit more, I started to reevaluate those things and and sort of shift some of the metrics around what I was willing to invest in. Yeah, and we saw that happen a decent amount at the Pro Tours too, like maybe towards the end of it, once yep. people were established and had a couple years of platinum money saved up and were, you know, relatively successful content creators and everything. Is like once once you have a little bit of extra money, you would see people just like, no, I'm just gonna stay in a room by myself, actually, because I don't want a room with someone who snores and I want to be able to go to bed at eleven or whatever and not have to deal with three rowdy people just like arguing all night or whatever. So yeah, take, take all of that stuff into consideration because it, it does matter. And you know, if, if you are like, I really want to do this, but I want to do it on a budget. I mean, there is that option too, right? Where you can leave at three in the morning, go five deep in a Prius or whatever. And you know, that's just how you got to do things. And I think that that's completely reasonable, but like also at the same time, do your due diligence and, you know, figure out when the events are pre-reg if you have to, you know, because you don't want to be the one like testing and making plans for this thing or like taking off work or whatever. And then you find and out you that the event is capped. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
yeah, it's like there's so many different ways that you can put in effort and uh, I don't know, like show that you care, prove that you care, whatever. Like, I, I don't know how much like that is relevant, but just like keep your actions consistent. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, just always act in line with what your goals are. And I think that can be a good guiding principle. You know, make make time to do whatever testing you need and figure things out because there there are going to be situations that come up where you're like, well, this deck just did really well this week and I'm not confident in my sideboard plan or whatever. It's like, well, then you need to hammer out some time and figure that out, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's no replacement for hard work. That's what it comes down to. And and if you aren't able to do those things, that is okay. I don't think you should ever feel bad about like family commitments, work commitments, no, not, not not having the money to do these things. All those things are acceptable, but you have to also be honest with yourself about those things and uh, understand how that's impacting your performance. And you know, I I think it's fine to give yourself some some grace, some cushion and say, look, I had a lot of other things going on in my life. I did the best I could. It didn't work out. That's acceptable. But just keep all of this in mind, keep stock of all of it. And then you're better prepared to deal with the losses. And in fact, a lot of my best successes came at times where like, I didn't have enough to invest into whatever it was I needed to do, like pro tour testing or anything like that. And, and still did really well. And I think a lot of it was just like, I took the pressure off myself. I was like, you know, I, I did the best I could. It is what it is. Let's see what happens. And then things went well a few times. And yep. I think if I, from the beginning, was just like, I have to do well. I have to do well. I'm so angry. I didn't get the time to do this. It would have put all this undue pressure and probably even forced some bad decisions. So uh, I can't recommend that approach enough. Yeah, just being able to have a clear mind about things is so helpful. And generally, yeah. you see that not be the case when someone is putting a lot of pressure on themselves. Very true. So I, one thing I will say about the like, oh, I need specific advice for like this one matchup or whatever is like things are way different from when, you know, you and I were playing in pro tours. It's like there, there are a lot of people who whose life is grinding and just like playing magic a lot and either streaming or making content off it via Patreon or whatever. And I think that you can very easily approach those folks if they are knowledgeable in those things and be like, hey, you know, if I gift two subs to your Twitch channel, like give you five bucks or whatever. Can you help me with this matchup? Just like give me the breakdown of like how I should sideboard and how it plays out or whatever. And it's like those people would be more than happy to help you, especially if they're getting paid. I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, a lot of resources available now and also a lot of free resources, a lot of communities where people are willing to help. You just have to figure out who you trust, who you want to listen to. And, you know, not all sources in the internet age are created equal. I think we all should know that by now. So do your due diligence, figure out who uh, whose opinion you value, and, and don't be afraid to seek out help. Yeah, and there, there are discords that exist for almost every archetype in modern specifically, but like also a lot of stuff in Pioneer where people are just really big fans of like Lotus Field or whatever, right? And it's like, you, you want help with a matchup? It's like, find their discord. And yeah. I'm pretty sure you can just like Google it and be able to figure it out. Generally, the enthusiasts are more than happy to help you or at least like point you in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So you had <laughs> you had a point at the the end of the cost section. You might want to I, I want you to say it, not me. OK, <laughs> what point exactly is this? Uh, just the last sentence. So what I have written here is otherwise you have to accept that you didn't give it your all and can't be upset about losing to someone who did. And I, I think that is 
very much in line with the philosophy I've presented and that there is some degree of like freedom you have to give yourself and just be honest. If you're, if you're not doing everything you can to win, don't come in with the attitude like you deserve to win. That's something I saw a lot where just, you know, someone is like, Oh, I'm, I'm naturally better at this game or I've, I've played a bunch of pro tours. So of course I'm going to win this PPTQ and I, I won't put any effort in. And again, all of those things are fine. Everyone gets to engage how they choose, but don't, be angry that someone who worked their ass off is able to best you, you know, six years past your pro tour glory, there's uh, things have changed. And, uh, I, I don't think, I think a lot of people are going to be upset with their results that probably don't have any right to be when we do this RCQ season. I think people in general are not happy being told that they have no right to be upset when things don't break their way. Uh, which is the only reason I didn't want to say it. I, I, I do mostly agree with you, though, and I do think that a lot of being upset or uh, just going on tilt in general stems from entitlement. For sure. I know that's where my own issues with the, uh, with the problem stem from, 100%. And uh, a big part of my growth as a player was like moving past those ideas that I was deserving of these things that nobody is deserving of. It, things break weird. Uh, you know, we all work hard and it just doesn't work that way. No meritocracies. No, meritocracy doesn't exist. It is really difficult to move away from that though. And if I am the most knowledgeable person in the room or, and, or the, uh, most hardworking, which is definitely a non-zero percentage of the time, you know, and I do lose and I, I do think that like there are there are always things that I could have done better, right? Mm-hmm. Every every single time. But say it's in like, you know, this one specific moment, this one specific instance where it's just like, you know, I th- things should not have broken that way or whatever. It is difficult to not get upset in that moment. And the thing that I did was just find better ways of dealing with it. And for, for me, it was just like let it go. Like there, there is no reason to bottle it up or even express it in the moment. It's just like, it's over. It's done with, you can't do anything about it. So what, what purpose is it serving you? Yeah. Really, really useful attitude, uh, centered around like utility and what am I actually doing here? How does this benefit me? And the answer to these type of things is it usually doesn't whatsoever and and just move forward and on to the next thing. Yeah. And, and that's it. And it's like, you know, I'll think about it a couple of days later or whatever and be like, damn it, you know, but I'm not, I'm not like seething mad anymore. Mm-hmm. It just, it just like doesn't happen to me. Uh, like maybe for like a split second in that moment. Right. But then it's, it's, I just try and let it go as quickly as possible and just focus on something else. And it's honestly like it never happened. One, so. of, one of the best things I think you can do in this scenario is, Put, put yourself in spots where you just get annihilated because someone is better than you. Like let yourself be the worst player in the room and you know, it'll, it'll humble you up real quick. Yeah. But it's a great way to learn. I, I actually, I, I think I probably just experienced it uh, over these past few weeks. Uh, I will tell you that the developers for flesh and blood, in my opinion, might just be like the best flesh and blood players in the world. And so playing with them over the last two weeks, I lost a lot. A yeah. lot, like I, 
I just got beat up by players who were more experienced than me and were extremely, extremely good in a, a lower variance game. But I learned so much and was able to like, uh, you know, reform so many of my presuppositions about the game and just, it was just an immense benefit. And if I had gone with the idea that like, Oh, I have to prove myself to these people and I I'm the best in this room. And if I lose, you know, nothing, nothing's to be gained here. It would have been an absolute disaster and it was anything but. Right. Yeah. I mean, they have (laughs) like a very good core group of people who have probably been playing the game for like four or five years. Right. Yep. Uh, Got to imagine Got to imagine that they're going to be pretty good. A lot of experience, a lot of hours a day playing the game in a game that, you know, doesn't have an online client. So there aren't many people. I I mean, I just don't think there are people in the world who have played more than the devs of of Flesh and Blood. There just aren't. And incredibly talented at their game. So, uh, yeah, really awesome experience. All right. So figure out what you want. Have everything you do align with that. And if you think you want it more than anyone else, be willing to pay the cost for that because it is expensive, not just monetarily, but also in in time and in a lot of other different ways too. Mentally, yeah, up and down the board. So uh, as far as preparation, I think for, for general stuff, it is best to find someone that you can travel or test with that will make things more enjoyable, either like your time or the testing or the, the road trips, whatever it is. And like, honestly, you, you could do it alone in theory. And I think that there are a lot of people who are going to have to do that. But even then, it's just like, I don't know, find again, one of those discord communities. And I think that ours is very good. I don't like we have some folks in there who are like specialists of various things or whatever. But like, if you know that you're going to play Phoenix or whatever, it's like, well, you know, go find that discord and chat up with those people. But yeah, just, you know, try and find someone make the experience fun for you because you're probably going to be doing it for like two or three months, you know, and that's just for like this season. Right. So uh, if you can find someone to do it with you like year round, who's local, who is kind of like on the same trajectory as you and has the same goals as you, even better. And definitely be aware that you are the person kind of responsible for making it fun for them too. Uh, So, you know, if if you're like, well, I found someone who's really fun, but like, I'm just going to complain all the time. It's like, well, they might not want to stick around with you for very long. So keep that in mind too. Yeah. Good point. Uh, I, you know, at this stage in my career, I certainly prioritize just the people I like being around. That will be my companion crew, no matter what. But I, I do think there's something to be said about, finding a play group that has similar goals to you and you know cares as much as you do because otherwise it's really hard to find the commonality like the level of sacrifice that you're willing to make it's just not going to be shared if someone doesn't care as much as you do you know and maybe that puts you in a position where you're not with your favorite person in the world you're with someone who just wants it as much as you do and you get along with them they're they're tolerable but they're not your best friend I think those situations can work too. And I think you should be open to the idea of like really aligning yourself uh, sort of competitively rather than friendship wise. And again, all about what you're trying to get out of this. And if you know the answer to what you're trying to get out of this experience, you'll be able to answer this question of, do I travel with my best friend or do I travel with someone who uh, is putting in the same amount of reps as I am and 
cares about getting onto this pro tour above all else. Yeah. I mean, it, the distinction could also be like, well, this, this person cares and we're going to drive the night before and get a hotel. And yep. yeah. you know, maybe my best friend is like, well, I'm going to drive the morning of not really care. And then also, you know, probably just like leave early or want to leave early if, if they bust out. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- those things, those things all matter. Find, find people who align with you. And I think that things will be a lot smoother, a lot easier. And even, you know, like the, the car rides home where you get to discuss like what worked, what didn't work, what you're going to do next week, whatever. I think that all of those things add up to, I don't know, not, not just like making you better or making you grow, but just like everyone grows in that way is as long as everyone's on the same page. But if a person like didn't put in reps and bust out of the tournament and is not very happy and wants to talk about anything other than magic, but y'all are like fired up to go to the next one because you know, you lost in top four, lost in the finals or whatever, they're, they're not going to have fun with that conversation. Right. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I, <laughs> I would not rely on stores for last minute purchases. And I, I wouldn't rely on them to have a single card. I think if you show up to an event without everything you need, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And obviously there's some amount of, you can run around asking for people to borrow things and whatnot. But I think a lot of people at this point aren't necessarily carrying like their entire collections with them or whatever. Nope. And a lot of people are rebuilding their collections, especially in these two formats that have had a yeah. tremendous amount of churn, uh, you know, modern pioneer over the last few months. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be, you know, usually in store with like just the one vendor and not everyone has a massive amount of stock or anything. So do what you got to do to get your stuff early. And for, for me, that's going to be a pain in the ass because I, never really settle on like my exact 75 until the night before, because I'm always taking in information, always learning stuff. So there, there is almost certainly going to come a point where I have to play basically like a suboptimal 75, like something that I would not register, but it's like based on card availability because they don't happen to have it. Yeah. It was for this reason that I used to have four of every card in standard and I would carry it with me to every single tournament because I, I knew things would change. I would adapt at the last second and I wanted to have everything with me. You know, that's probably not realistic for Pioneer or Modern, just in terms of sheer number of cards no. you'd have to travel around with. But uh, yeah, I think we're all going to have some holes in our collection. And I foresee similar problems where I just won't be able to get everything I need, uh, especially if I don't uh, start getting on the ball and ordering some of these cards that I've missed over the last two years. So now you're thinking like, well, crap, I'm missing stuff for all of the decks that I would consider playing, but I don't want to just like, do a thousand dollar order for everything that I'm missing. So what am I supposed to do? And I, I think the best way to go about things is try and get a handle on the format early and maybe narrow down your archetype and acquire the cards for that and the things that you might need from different yeah. versions. So great time to go to the rental services on Magic Online and just uh, you know get a good broad experience with the entire format. Play as many decks as you would even broadly consider and just rely on that when the time comes to actually lock in your final decision. Shout out to Card Hoarder. We have rental services with them. Don't use them a ton, but... But I'm always happy they're there when I do, and they're very easy to use, very awesome. Uh, Appreciate them a lot. Exactly. Uh, Also, like last month, obviously this is a little late, but uh, last month Magic Online had like the all-access token where when that sort of event pops up, you can certainly take advantage of that too. Yep. 
But Good even point. in the meantime, it's just like be be watching streams, like get a handle for the things that people are playing against, what the format looks like. Look at the the deck lists from Magic Online from the challenges, mtgo.com. Scroll down a little bit, click on deck list, has all the Magic Online decks. Just click around in there. There's like so much information that you could be taking in if it's a period where you don't have time to test or you think that testing is not super valuable because it's a lot of work to, you know, build decks for the format and like play matchups that might not exist and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, well, okay, pay attention to things at least while you're not doing the physical stuff yourself, right? Yeah, good advice. So for for me, what that looks like now is, uh, <laughs> I guess also my situation's a little bit different because I'm going to be going to some of these events with Josh Cho, like things that are in, uh, either Northern Virginia or like Maryland area or whatever. And like, he, he doesn't have a collection and I do. So, uh, I basically have to provide two decks. <laughs> so now let me ask about show as a, basically a patron of yours where he's reliant on you to provide a deck. Is he, is he very particular or is he just like, you know, what do you have left? I'll make it work. Like, like what, how does he rate as a borrower? Cause I've dealt with some borrowers who are complex individuals, despite me providing absolutely everything for them. Yeah, I I think Josh, like mine and Josh's relationship is pretty similar to mine and yours, where I think we both just try and make things as smooth as possible for the other person. Right. Which I greatly respect and appreciate. So he's just like, dude, I don't care. Give me whatever you think is playable, you know? And I think that is fine, but I also know that he's going to be like, man, this deck is bad, right? <laughs> right. Still going to let so, you hear about it. So like the, the fact that he is trying to be as smooth as possible also makes me kind of want to go the extra mile and like give him something that is actually good. So I don't know. There, there's stuff where, you know, for modern, for example, I think that humans is like pretty reasonable and I have a lot of the cards for humans. Obviously there's some stuff I still need to pick up, but uh, also some of those cards just got reprinted. So ding. Um, nice. But yeah, I, I would not mind playing humans in one of the RCQs and giving him something that's like a little bit more powerful, a little bit better. And if we kind of like trade off on weeks, I'm down with that. I'm sure he's down with that too. But also like given how my uh, view on things, like my my goals, my try hardiness has eroded slightly in the last couple of weeks, it's like, I, I mostly want to see him qualify more than me too. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll see when it gets like a, a little bit closer to one of the events that, uh, we both knew that we were going to be at, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, it's always interesting to me to hear how other people, uh, function as their community's repository of all the cards i know uh, my brother has benefited from my large collection for literal decades now and uh usually is pretty accepting that like i get first choice but in a lot of instances i'll temper my first choice with a desire to like set him up with something that i know is like best suited for him right yeah and anyway so for me i am gravitating towards blue red something mm-hmm. in pioneer so i've been picking up certainly like the dual lands and things like that, that I need. And then it was like, well, this, this like days undoing Narset one was good for a little bit and picked up some of the stuff for that. And then there was like the prowess version. People are going back to Phoenix now that like iteration has been banned. So I have, I have cards for like all the pieces of that and it really, it doesn't take much. And 
I guess also one thing that factors into like cost and preparation and stuff is like, what do you think is going to happen to the prices of cards when these events are in full swing? Prices of cards are going to go up. I I don't see. I don't even know if I believe that. I don't know if they're actual drivers of these prices anymore. Like just the sheer number of people who are buying cards. I I think that the participants in the system are a drop in the bucket at this point. And might they go up still? Yes. Is it actual supply and demand that I'm not as sure about? For for modern specifically, I think yes. When you're talking about like MHD Mythics, like yes, absolutely. I don't know, man. I, I really don't. I, I just think like you're talking about what? Four percent of the player base, like three percent. I don't I don't even know anymore. It's such a small, small fraction of the people buying cards. And MHG okay, is like a banger commander set too. So like those people are also buying those cards and look at it. Look at it from the flip side. When you go to the RC in Atlanta or the 30th anniversary thing in Las Vegas or whatever, buy prices will be higher than for modern pioneer stuff than they are now. than if you went to an SCG like a month ago, probably that, true. That is just true because the vendors are almost all stemming from local stores that have inventory. Yeah, so, so, so they need more to be able to sell. During the PTQ season, right? Yeah. And yeah. if they are buying them for hire, it means that they're selling them for hire. So whatever. Like you get you get to take advantage of it both ways. If you get your cards a little bit early now, you're probably going to save like 10, 20%. And then also you can probably sell them back later for more than you could sell them for now. So if you're thinking about selling cards now, I would probably wait off for a month or two. Or for the rest of your life, as I have always done. For some things, that's a good idea. Certainly, if we're talking reserve list, yes, absolutely. Just sit on it. But we're not. So anyway, metagaming specifically is interesting because I think that, uh, you know, I directed you to the Magic Online decklist, for example. And I think that there's a very solid group of people who play those events with regularity and it's a rotating cast for sure. You're not, everyone is there every single week or whatever, but it's like, if the person wasn't there for two weeks, they might be there for the third week and so on. Right. It's like, yeah, it's, it's the same 200 people playing all these events. You can't convince me otherwise. Like maybe a new person shows up every few weeks, but that's it. No, I mean, I, I think, I think that the amount of new people per week is a, a decent number, but whether or not they stick around is completely up in the air. But like generally if you're playing a challenge on the weekend, it is against a bunch of magic online regulars. Right. Mm. And they are kind of like setting their own metagame and they are metagaming against that specific field and whatever you feel like the magic online field looks like is correct for magic online, but is not necessarily what you would expect to see at local stores. And that is where the events are being held. And the people who are probably going to get the first news that their local store has an event and get the first chance to like sign up are the locals, right? Because I don't know, for example, I signed up for one of the events in a local discord because Anderson was in there and he sent me the screenshot and they were giving their regulars first crack at it before they just took open signups up through their website or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you are way more likely to face a, a local than, you know, some out of towner with a Magic Online deck, right? And what does that mean? It's like, well, have you ever played modern at your local store? 
because it's weird and it doesn't look like magic online. So you really have to be prepared for that. I think especially in these two formats, which are just like not standard. So they have capacity to be broader and there are all these weirdo decks and a lot of like holdover people who were playing, you know, three years ago. Like if, if humans was way more popular than it should be, that would not shock me because when you look at the moment when like a lot of live magic was being played, humans was still very popular. It has since fallen off, but a lot of those people are going to pick up said humans again and just be like, yes, this is still my modern deck. And I think there'll be other trends like that, that we see, replicated across both of these metagames so uh trying to predict it based on what is happening on magic online would be a fool's errand in my estimation yeah i think that there's some amount of stock that you can put into it where it's like well grix's death shadow is kind of making a resurgence because canister won a challenge two weeks ago and therefore more people are picking it up so it's like yeah you can expect there to be like five or seven copies of the deck in the room or whatever which is more than zero would have been the week before, right? So there are little things like that where it's like, well, maybe I just inherently want to have a good Grixis Shadow list, for example. But you got to keep in mind that the rest of the rounds, you're just going to play against nonsense. And then given that, how does that affect your, your deck selection or even like the specific card choices you play? Yeah, I think the move is small adjustments, not overcorrections in this case you can't panic and you have to be kind of kind of linear in your approach like look to do the best things and understand how those things interact with the format and i i think that's how you set yourself up for success at these events i don't think that you can do something like my deck is really really good at interacting with creatures just in in a general sense i mean Obviously, there are going to be like formats and metagames where that is true or whatever, where it's like there's just creature decks everywhere. But being sort of like pigeonholed into, oh, I only deal with this, this subset of archetypes really well is probably not how you want to position yourself. And, you know, P- Pioneer is is definitely like two ships passing in the night more than Modern is these days. But Modern also has a, a pretty wide selection of decks that are just like, well, you know, if you're if you're playing creatures that's kind of good for me. But if you're not like, it's also not that bad because my cards have a lot of utility. And so like, you know, four color Merc tide, uh, even, even things like shadow, it's just like, it, it's really not that bad. Even if your deck has like four lightning bolts and four and holy heats in it, because those generally have targets in the form of planeswalkers or faces. So, you know, I think that you probably can't go too wrong in modern, but, but yeah, Pioneer is like, well, I played this because it's good against Lotus Field and I have like damping spheres in my sideboard or whatever. And just like, well, no one at this store plays Lotus Field. So you know, you're, you're just not going to play against it. And you're yeah. just never going to know that. So yeah. Uh, yeah, just try try to be a generalist. Try and have solid game against everything. If you can make some sort of soft read because of something like, you know, Canister winning a challenge with a new deck that you know that people like playing and has a lot of overlap with popular decks. Like, you know, if someone was playing Murktide, they could pretty easily switch to Shadow uh, and it, it wouldn't cost them very much, at least if they had some amount of modern collection or like friends with a modern collection, right? So I think that you can pretty easily make assumptions based on that. And it's also based on how folks are talking about it on Twitter, where it's like, oh yeah, this this deck is definitely real. It's definitely very good. And Ganesh saying like he broke it or whatever, you know? 
then I think that, that you're definitely going to see people pick it up. But in general, very, very soft reads. Do not commit any hard reads. Do not hard commit to being an archetype or, or a specific thing that you think is flavor of the week because it's just not going to be more than 10% of the field in these tournaments. Like we, we've talked about this kind of with the arena PTQs and I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of it is very similar where it's, it's just so open and hard to predict that you just shouldn't make any predictions. You should play something that is naturally good, naturally powerful and hope that that is good enough to carry you. And then like, certainly when you get to top eight, maybe they, that gets filtered a little bit, you know, all the, the folks with the three-year-old modern decks are probably not going to make the top eight in most cases. So, you know, if you if you get to top eight, are you going to be playing against like Mill or Martyr or whatever? Probably not. But, you know, you might play against them in the Swiss and maybe whatever sort of soft read micro adjustment sort of stuff you made going into top eight, maybe that helps you. Stay abstractly powerful. That's the way I always look at it when preparing for these things. Just find powerful things to do that work against everyone. And, and that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah, and I, I guess if this is your specific local store and you do know a lot of the player base and you do know who's going to be in attendance and you know that all these people only own one modern deck or whatever, yeah, do do whatever you can. But you know, also be aware of how big the tournament is or is going to be and what that means for the field that you predicted, right? Mm-hmm. Because you got to beat all the out-of-towners who are coming to steal your store's trophy too. Absolutely. Yeah, in in general, I think that if there is a best deck, I don't think you can go too wrong just opting to play that instead. And for a while, that's been four color in modern. And I know that recently that deck has not been doing all that well. But I think that those things just kind of full swing back around by the time these sort of like open PTQ start, you know? Yeah, especially in like the non- inbred magic online metagame where it's just like the probably most abstractly powerful thing you can do and as long as you can finish your games in time i don't think you're going wrong by making that choice yeah and in in general with deck selection i i am definitely very spiky and i'm willing to play the best deck but i will generally gravitate towards playing something that is like the best version of a thing i enjoy doing and the problem with that is that, yeah, I'm playing something that is probably fine, but it basically just like tricks me into playing things that are not optimal or just like outright bad decks. And I worked to correct that for a long time. And I think that I was getting better at it, but also I haven't played a tournament in like three years. So I'm probably mm. pretty bad at it again. So yeah, just being aware of those those things too. And then when it comes to time to like actually select your deck and you're like, okay, I've, I've settled on this. Well, then you kind of have to second guess yourself and be like, am I choosing this deck for the right reasons? And am I being honest with myself? Because I think in, in so many instances, again, with trying to make it so your actions align with your goals, I think mm. that uh, a lot of people just aren't self-aware in that regard. Really good point. I think it's interesting from my perspective that as I have spent less time like tweaking and tuning decks, it's probably been to my benefit a large percentage of the time because it just means I default to playing the best thing. And I I don't convince myself like, oh, you know, 
if this Grixis deck was built properly, it would it would be good against everything, and I, I will go ahead and fix it and just make it good. And you know, sometimes you do fix it and you make it good and and you succeed. A lot of times you don't, and you should have just picked up the best deck and played it, and you would have done far better off. And I think uh, recent years I have also done a better job of that, and I I mostly plan to continue that when it comes to uh, this round of tournaments. Yeah, it's interesting because when you're outside looking in on a format, you're just like. You, you don't know the intricacies of everything, right? So mm-hmm. you just get to approach it like, oh, this Lotus Field deck looks like really busted. And like, why aren't more people playing it uh, in, the, in the case of Pioneer, right? But like, if you know the intricacies of the format, it's just like, well, you know, the red, black midrange has like, you know, disruption and can side in damping sphere or whatever, you know, and like you just make up excuses for like reasons not to play it or whatever. But mm-hmm. When, when you are basically just like a spectator, you're just like, that deck seems sick. Like, why, why aren't people doing this? And then you're able to just like pick it and learn it and not make any excuses because you don't know the context. And I think that that's honestly good because you, you just get to look at it holistically without blinders on. Damn, you just outed my deck choice to uh, the whole world there, Gerald. But uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's why I think I will play Lotus Field in Pioneer for these upcoming tournaments. It's just like so abstractly powerful. Uh, it's very hard for me to believe this is a thing you're allowed to do in the format. And sure, everyone has kind of like warped their deck around this existing to try and make it not as good. But uh, some people will slip on that. Some people will not want to give up the sideboard slots. And I also think there's merit in like mastering the thing that no one wants to practice against. Like who wants to sit down and play games <laughs> against Lotus Field? Absolutely yeah. nobody on the planet. And to the same extent, I'd actually say the same thing about Burn and Modern, which I also think is a very, very good choice for these upcoming events. Is like people just don't want to do their reps. They don't want to play against these decks. And they're both linear, powerful, really widespread of good matchups and you know, if it would not shock me if at the end of the season I have played only Lotus Field and Burn across these these two formats, because I, I just believe in like putting people to the test and making sure they're being honest and accounting for the most powerful things you can do. And I, I think again, when you're playing like local store plus, you know, plus some outsiders, I think that that is a good way to go about things and like farm some pretty easy wins, honestly. Like Burn is interesting because I think inherently I just understand what the deck is capable of and don't necessarily need to play reps against it. Like, And this this is true, you know, even, I don't know, eight years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I just inherently understood based on like the composition of my deck, like how many cards I would need to realistically help the matchup. And I think I did a good job of that. And I don't think that other people are quite as good as eyeballing. Nope. They are, they are not. And I, I believe that you were excellent at that because I felt very similarly. But again, you have to think about the field you're playing in, think about the level of competition. And very important here, this isn't to discredit anyone. You're going to face great players across these events. Yeah. Without a doubt, there's going to be really good players. I do think on average, though, it's fair to say that you should expect the skill level to be like certainly lower than a pro tour, almost certainly lower than Magic Online events. I think all those assumptions are very safe to make. And almost certainly true. Yeah. And I, I think that part of the problem is is people are like, well, I have Omnath in my deck. I'm fine. It's like, well, your your deck is also 80 cards, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in theory, if if things line up well, you're good. But 
I've also seen lists of four color that have things like blossoming column in the sideboard yeah. that are very good against burn. And, you know, pro- probably that person lost to burn one too many times, you know, and that also happens where a, a lot of people like undercorrect or overcorrect depending. Can happen. Yep. And I think that I was really good at being like, no, I, I actually need, you know, two cards. And if I think that there's going to be a lot of it, then I'll play three cards. Right. And if I think that there's none of it, you know, maybe I'll play none and just be like super weak to it. It, it all just depends. But for Lotus Field specifically, I've kind of felt the opposite where I'm like, yeah, I, th- I think I have a handle on this deck. And then I play against it and it's like, oh, I, I definitely do not. You know, it's like, oh, I, if I did, if I did like way more reps, I would have known to like not counter the hidden strings. I mm-hmm. would have waited for them to cast pour over the pages because the strings didn't get them anywhere meaningful. And I can just counter their big spell. Whereas like you counter the strings and then they pass and you pass and then they pour and they still just get to go off against you. And those situations I was only, only ever able to figure out after having played the matchup. It's a weird deck. And unlike many of the things that are going on in present day magic. And I think that's why I find it so appealing for this particular set of events. Yeah. So weave that into the equation too, as far as, figuring out what is the last piece of homework that you need to do, you know, and is this a thing that you actually need to know? Is this a thing that would help you a lot? Is this like the, the last missing piece or is it a thing that you just don't think is going to come up and do you not want to devote the time or is that probably true, but also you have a lot of free time anyway. So maybe you could just spend the time doing it and try and solidify how things are. And again, it's going to differ depending on everyone's situation. Yeah, much like all forms of magic, your job during this prep uh, session is to get to reasonably informed conclusions off of way too small of a sample size. So your whole game is like figuring out where do I get the most return for my investment, both in in time, uh, in in reps, in dollars, quite frankly. like you, You have to be constantly weighing this because in a perfect world, we would just prepare for everything. I don't think most people will be preparing for everything. No, I'm, I think the formats are also just like too wide yep. for them to be able to do that. And then like you mentioned, there's merit to picking up something like Lotus field where it's like, well, people probably aren't going to test against it. And that means that maybe they won't sideboard for it or they won't sideboard for it in the right way. God willing. God willing. <laughs> for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how, how many events do you have near you? Do you know? Uh, I, I looked once. I didn't put together a calendar or something. If someone is in the upstate New York area and wants to go ahead and send me a calendar, that would be just lovely. I, I would love to not struggle through uh, the Wizards website, which is uh, predictably broken and like requires you to turn on filters and look in two different places. Like you have to look at both premiere events and RCQs, and neither of them will return results unless you put on a filter, I'm told. So it's just a nightmare to actually get the full picture of what's going on around you. And I will just rely on somebody else telling me, oh, there's this event happening at the state. Show up at it. Uh, you should message Tyler O'Brien. Okay. Will do. Or, or Tyler O'Brien, message me. I'm here. <laughs> you should message Tyler O'Brien. <laughs> I am sick. I don't feel well. Do, do me a solid, Tyler. Just reach out. Uh, just make it easy on me. And, and I will appreciate you forever. Well, You'll have my undying thanks. I mean, similar to Anderson's, like, I don't even know if he listens. So who knows? Okay. Someone who knows Tyler. <laughs> reach All out right. to Tyler and get in touch. Last last point is, uh, you know, we, we kind of touched on it a little bit with what the skill level 
of the various folks in these tournaments are going to be. And I think it's going to vary pretty wildly. But you got to realize that you don't know going in, right? You're going to sit down across from someone. You're not going to know their name. They're maybe going to handle their cards like very awkwardly where it's like, oh, ha ha, you're, you're a new player or whatever. Uh, feeling a little targeted right now, but yep. continue. Uh, I mean, the person I always point out is Josh Utterlayton. Okay. Who like, you know, played paper magic, but also played a lot online and then never tried to develop like clean or like cool looking mechanics or whatever. So like you watch him shuffle and it's just like, what is this dude doing? But then he'll beat the crap out of you because he's just a million times better than you. Right. And I would not be shocked if, if that happens to a lot of folks when they start playing in these tournaments too, because a lot of people have learned magic in the last couple of years and haven't had many opportunities to play paper. So like, why would they know how to handle their cards? Why would they be aware of like how to track things in a way that appears coherent or whatever. Right. And yeah, like you, you just gotta respect your opponents to a certain level until maybe they give you a reason not to, and you can make a better educated guess of like where they are as far as skill level. And I don't know, basically what this all comes down to is being able to infer information based on the plays that they are making. And I think the most dangerous thing with that is someone may inadvertently feed you a thing that looks like information like, oh, my opponent is holding a sweeper or my opponent has a counterspell or whatever. And it just ends up not being that, you know, maybe just because they made a mistake. (laughs) But when someone is very, very good and they are making plays where it's pretty clear that they have a sweeper. It's like, well, maybe they could be bluffing you. Sure. But like in, in a lot of instances, like store level, mid level, where person is like pretty straightforward, ABC magic, like in general, you should just believe them. And yeah, I I think you just gotta be able to recognize that you don't know how good your opponents are going to be. You don't know if you're going to be able to infer things from the way that they do things. And that hopefully you get to a point where you can kind of size them up and be able to figure out when what they're telling you is true. But obviously that's a little bit advanced and maybe not something I should drop in like a 30 second rant or whatever, but something to think about. I think it's an excellent thing to just train yourself to start being aware of over time. And you're right. It's not something that's just going to come to you uh, with 30 seconds at the end of the podcast, but the more you're thinking about this topic, the more you'll start to see these opportunities, the more to start you'll start to question your own assumptions. I can't tell you how many matches of magic I won from people underestimating me. It's, it's just a tremendous amount. And I, I think it's actually now changed to where people overestimate me and I'm just not as good as they think I am. But previously, before anyone knew who I was, it was very much the opposite because I am awkward holding my cards and you know nobody knows who I am. And I, I remember a, a top eight match in a WMCQ actually, particularly against uh, Steve Rubin, where I had a mulligan to six and my hand was, I think, six lands. It was just abysmal. Uh, And I was playing blue-black control and he was on Abzan. And if he does anything in the first few turns, he just absolutely houses me. Like there's nothing I can do and there's no way I get into the game. But I keep the six land hand. And then on the key turn, I like faint to put in a tap land. Like I, I lower it down from my hand a little bit and then play an untap land instead. And 
he like I, I, he just didn't know who I was. Like had had no read on me whatsoever. And like to him, I was very sure that if I did this, it would say this person has the counter spell, and I will take this turn off and then leverage my advantage as the game goes along. Meanwhile, my hand is fucking blank, and if he does anything, I'm just obliterated. Um, but someone who told me, you know, watching his side of the match afterwards, and who eventually came over to my side, was just like you stole that game from him by just fainting that land on that first turn. And it, it is just about like, he, he doesn't know I'm capable of doing something like that. Right. Like he just thinks like I, I have shown my hand face up because I'm this clumsy player who he doesn't know. And I mean, maybe I, I might be imparting a lot of the situation. I've never talked with Steve about this. Maybe he actually did know that I was somewhat competent and it, it didn't factor into as much as I did. But from hearing other people who watched the matchup, they say it was critical and actually me being able to steal the tempo. And, I, and then I went out to beat him in a very long extended game. Uh, so, so just keep things like that in mind. Like, I don't know, you reach a point in a tournament, you you, sh- you should expect something from your opponents. Like there, there is a reason they have gotten to this point and uh, you know, don't, don't just make up your mind that this person is not capable of doing this thing. Yeah. And I mean, that that's interesting because you knew that Steve was on that level. Like you knew mm-hmm. that he was going to infer information based on what you did. And it's just like, well, what, what can I sell? You know? Yeah. Like, There's also this, kind of a desperation spot too, where like, this is, this is all I have. Like if he plays anything here, I'm, I'm just done for. Right. But, but it also like costs you very little mm-hmm. to do that. I mean, however much, you know, brain power, mental acuity, whatever you want to assign to it. But the, the point is, is like you you took a shot at this person who you you know is very good in a spot where you are in a bad situation. And uh, just like, yeah, the, the big the big point here is that you knew what level he was on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then then you found a way to exploit it. And like, that's a whole other thing is like looking for ways to actually do that. Right. And we, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. But. And we should. That's it's a great topic, and one of actually the things I think I'm best at in the game. And you know, it's kind of uh, a little unexplored, and something that it, people could benefit a lot from hearing an in-depth discussion of. So put that on the list, Gerald. Make sure we do that someday. Okay, I will. But it's it's also weird because I want people to focus on the things that matter and get good before they actually try. You know, like this is advanced, advanced stuff, right? And you also, can, you can always preface things that way and, and set I know, people up for that. I know. Uh, and, you know, maybe it is just like interesting to hear about, even if you're not going to try and implement it into your game or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that there's merit to doing the show. Uh, but the other thing is that the situations just come up so infrequently. They do. They're very rare. But I don't know. Also to like your, your point of like what you did is I think a lot of people will do things kind of on autopilot where it's like, well, I know I'm going to play a land this turn and I'm, I'm just going to play this one. Right. And then they'll start thinking. And I think that in a lot of those spots, the person would just like play the tappy land. And I think that that gives away some information um, where, you know, they also like gave up a situation where they could like, fake play the tappy land or they start playing the tappy land and then they're like, Oh wait, no, it's actually better to do this other one where it's just like, maybe you don't want to give away that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, right. Cause say, say you did have a counter spell or, you know, whatever situation you're talking about against Steve and you're like, I should play the tap land. Oh no, wait, I actually thought about it and I, I can't play it. Well, if you actually did have it and then Steve doesn't play anything, obviously it's better for Steve. That's why he did it. Or Correct. In, in his case, didn't do it. Right. Correct. Uh, so, my my big advice in general is just like 
literally before you do anything, figure out what your turn is going to be and then just do all the stuff. And this includes like, you know, playing lands or like things that you think are going to be obvious, right? Because once you walk through your turn, maybe it's not going to be so obvious or like maybe you have a thing that is going to draw you a card in combat, which changes which land you want to play or whatever. Like, yeah. Also, you might you might then come up with a situation where it's like, oh, yeah, I can maybe bluff them by like faking like I'm going to put in an ETB tap land and then not or something. So just just in general, good, good magic mechanics, like plan out your turn, then do your turn. Don't like do stuff and then start planning and then be like, oh, I actually blew it. Yeah, I, I think that also combines really well with the way I think about the game, which is like have a reason for every action you take, like understand why you're doing the things you're doing in all cases, even where they're like fundamental, like I'm playing my two drop on turn two, just, just there's always more to it than that. As we've done with like, you know, episodes about blocking the two, two, where we talked for an hour and a half about the decision to, to block a two, two with a two, two. I think like you can't go through all those reasons, but you should go through some of them. And there was this point recently, I don't remember where I heard it, but it was like someone discussing how the best magic players in the world aren't even necessarily the the best like raw magic players they just get to better conclusions faster than everyone else and that really like resonated with me because i started thinking about my own decision making process and i think like given infinite time i can get to the absolute core best play a very very large percentage of the time I do need that infinite time, though. I don't do it yeah. anywhere near as quickly as other people. And you do uh, take that infinite time. Oh, I do. I, I'm willing to use all of it. So, uh, and, and that's a huge difference between me and you know someone like you, someone like PV, who just can do these things very quickly. It, it's true. I, I may find better plays than both of you in some scenarios, but I think on the average, you will more quickly find a higher percentage play than I will. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm good for the eighty percenter in in two seconds. That's it, good. I, that's I think that's where you want to be most times. Uh, I mean, yeah, most times, but <laughs> not not always. Anything else? No, I, I have said so many words. I am not going to be able to talk for the rest of the week. Uh, I did enjoy this episode quite a bit, though, and I hope other people enjoyed it as well. And I hope it brings people a lot of success. You know, that's one of the things that I've really missed over the past few years of the pandemic is the best part of doing this podcast, which is having people being like, yeah. I listened to you. I did really well. Thank you so much. Like that meant the world to me whenever it happened. And there just haven't been opportunities for that to happen for so long. So I, I really hope this is helpful. And I, I always like to hear about it if it is. So feel no, free to reach out and tell me about it. It's true. And you bring it up now. And I'm like, I, I didn't even know I was missing that, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I think of it a lot. Yeah. Like it's just seeing your friends succeed in general is so great. And we used to be able to do that on, on like a semi-weekly basis, right? Yep. And there's just so little of that now. And yeah, that's just really sad. Yep. It might be the thing I'm most excited for in this PTQ season. Don't be afraid to share your W's. Like, I Be proud of them. Uh, be excited for them. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. You've worked hard. You've earned them. And uh, I, I love seeing that stuff across my timeline. Yeah, also, most people like haven't, shared a W in like three years. Right. Yep. So I, you're due. You, you, you have <laughs> built up, it. built up enough time of like, not, not bragging, not celebrating or whatever to now be able to celebrate. I think it's completely fine. Agreed. And encouraged. I will sign us out because <laughs> thank you. Thank I, you. I appreciate it, Gerald. I don't think you should have to, at least this week, nope. but dude, nope. the second your voice is better. 
game. Good luck.